0: I titled this series, Out of the Ashes, because there's a main theme running through both the books of First and Second Samuel, and that is that God is establishing his kingdom out of the ashes of a very unfaithful Israel. We've seen that uh, time and again, and Hannah even prays about this in chapter 2, and, he's, and she says, he will do it, and she says, by raising the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap out of the ashes. By guarding the feet of His faithful ones, she says, and cutting off the wicked in darkness. By breaking to pieces His adversaries and thundering against them from heaven. So in the end, the kingdom is going to be established not by might or by strength or by beauty or by height or by fear. It's not going to be established by the will of man, but by God's strength And power working through the meek and humble, oddly enough. But taking a step back from the book of Samuel and looking just at the broader message of Scripture as a whole, what you'll find in reading the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, is that all throughout it, God is establishing His kingdom. And going back to the Garden of Eden, God creates mankind and he gives him the charge of having dominion over the earth, being fruitful and multiplying and filling it and subduing it. So all the earth is created, and it's all of its created order is answerable to man there in Genesis one and two, man and woman, who were to rule in God's goodness and to rule as his ambassador. So you might say mankind was appointed as a vice regent over creation. They were to steward the goodness of God to everything else. And so the charge to guard and keep the garden and to have dominion over creation is not merely about teaching gorillas sign language or teaching dogs to sit. It's about taking the worship of the one true God and spreading it to all mankind. They're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth And that means they're to pass on that God-given stewardship of the earth to all generations, that they may all fear the Lord, that they may all steward the earth in the way that He commanded them to do it. So in that is obedience, in that is worship of God, in that is all of the things that we participate in now all wrapped into one command to Adam and Eve. But if you know the story, then you know that far from exercising dominion over the beasts of the field, Adam and Eve were actually dominated by a beast from the field. You remember the story. It's not just anything that creeps into the garden. It's not another human being. It's not even an angel, in, at least not in masquerade. It's, it's a serpent, it says, more crafty than the other beasts of the field. The serpent creeps in and tempted man and woman to eat the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. And so by sinning against God and taking of the fruit that they were commanded not to eat, Adam poisoned the stream that we were all born into. into. Every single one of us born into that poisoned stream. So no more could mankind be an adequate representative on the earth For God, who is holy, when mankind is sinful, it was incompatible. Our original mandate couldn't be fulfilled by us. So God punishes Adam and Eve and the serpent. And to the serpent, he says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse contains the first veiled promise of the gospel. That's what's in there. The first promise that what is right now taking place will not always be so. That the serpent will not always have the hold that he currently does have and is permitted to have. That there will one day be an offspring, an offspring of the woman, her offspring, he says. He, God says, will crush the head of the serpent. So naturally, if you're there hearing that and that story is then passed on to your sons and your grandsons and your great-great-grandsons, they're naturally going to begin looking for that promised seed, wouldn't you? You say, he will crush the head of the serpent? So naturally, when you receive a promise like that, you're looking for that seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. So what that means then is that as people of God, Every battle that you ever engage in is a God-sized battle against a serpent-sized enemy. You get it? Every battle is a God-sized battle against a serpent-sized enemy. So the question then remains, will God's people have dominion over the serpent? Every battle they go into, will they have dominion over the serpent? Or will the serpent have dominion over God's people? So in some sense, time and again in the Old Testament, as you read it, time and again, the battle in the Garden of Eden begins afresh. It's almost like every page of Scripture is that question of whether or not we'll give in to the serpent or whether we'll be dominated by the serpent. And so that question just hangs in the air on every page of Scripture. Now we've already seen Moses lead the people up to the Promised Land, And he shows hope that he might be the one to stomp on the head of the serpent, and yet he flames out. He doesn't have what it takes to enter the promised land even. Soon we'll see David. he begins with so much promise, conquers enemy after enemy, not least of which is Goliath, and he brings God's people together, unifies the kingdom for the first time in a long time under him, really since Adam and Eve. And yet... He'll sin spectacularly. But then Solomon takes the throne, builds the temple, looks to be like a garden of Eden. But then he will marry foreign women and chase after their gods. Each one of them flame out time and again. So in 1 Samuel, God's people have a king. And this story of Saul's uh, defeat of the Ammonites, you can sense, is filled to the brim with hope. There's barely a discouraging word in this whole passage. Even Saul's theology is right. Wow! What an amazing thing that is if you know how the story ends. But this is a long story of victory. It's long anticipated. It's a much needed victory for God's people. And there's an enemy that behind the scenes has been breathing down their necks for a long time in these people, the Ammonites. And they're threatening Saul and the people of Israel with a lifetime of humiliation. In particular, a particular part of the people of God, threatening them with a lifetime of humiliation. So if ever God's people needed victory on the battlefield, it would be right now. We really need you to show up, God. However, there is a bit of history here, isn't there? We've kind of gone through in the past few weeks. See, the people in just the recent few weeks have not really had much of a desire for God. They've sort of cast God off altogether and rather would seek out disobedience. And so that poses a bit of the problem. So now when Israel was in her most urgent time of need, the question remains, would God leave His people to our own devices, or would he show up and conquer the enemy? And so this passage shows us that first God crushes the enemy of his people by the power of his spirit. God crushes the enemy of his people by the power of his spirit. There is a king of the Ammonites named Nahash. The Ammonites were an enemy of Israel, the long enemy of Israel, and they traced their lineage back to one of the daughters of Lot, in fact, the youngest daughter of Lot and, uh, uh, in Genesis 19.38. I won't go into the details of that story, but you can go back and read it some other time. Genesis 19.38. So, the point is that, that because they're descendants from Lot, they're rivals in one sense and enemies in one sense, and they're also family in another sense. You've probably felt like this from time to time, right? Uh... I know I have. So they're an enemy and a distant relative. But in our passage, uh, Nahash pulls into town in the town of Jabesh Gilead, which is a town just east of the Jordan River in the, in the uh, province of East Manasseh, and just east of the Sea of Galilee, and he's threatening to overthrow it. He's going he's gonna to conquer it. But the people of the town have this really great idea. They would just go out, and before we ever engage in battle here, we'll offer him a a proposal. Why don't we just surrender? What would happen if we just surrender? Would you kill us then? And he, uh, he offers them a deal. But you see, history tells us that Nahash has been terrorizing the area for some time. And his calling card to say that he's the one that's been there is that as he conquered the village he gouged out the right eyes of all the men of the town the premise is really simple if you're a, a man in this day and you're a fighting man you have the shield on your left arm and the eye that you look around the corner of your shield with is your right eye as you hold your sword in your right hand so if you gouge out the right eye of a man then he's no use on the battlefield and the only thing he's fit for is to be of service to you for the rest of his life because he can't fight. And so the people are faced with this devastating choice. Fight and lose. Surrender and lose. So Nahash in verse 2 says to the people who are trying to make peace with him, he tells them this, verse 2, But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So Nahash says, sure, if you want to surrender, just let me cut out your right eyes and everything will be fine. So the people go, you know what, let's take seven days, all right? Give us some time to just think about it, and let's see if we can scrounge up an army that might, you know, give you a challenge. Now, you might have to wonder, why in the world would Nahash take that deal? That seems like a a deal he's got no interest in. Give you seven days to see if you can scrounge up an army? Why don't I just conquer you right now? Well, one, the reason is because he's arrogant, and he assumes that he can beat no matter who shows up on the battlefield. But two, in his arrogance, he figures that the more men of Israel they scrounge up to the battlefield, the more conquering he gets to do of these men. The more right eyes he gets to gouge out, and the less soldiers they have to fill a battlefield. So the easier it is then to conquer the rest of the land, right? You see the logic here. Well, if I'm really arrogant, then I can just let all of them show up. So it, the point is, the messengers from Jabesh-Gilead, they reached Saul's hometown of Gibeah, and they say this. Look at verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field and behind the oxen, and, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took the yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So the people hear the news of the threat of Nahash, and they begin to weep, cry aloud, this is the end. We're all doomed. We've no sooner appointed a king than we're about to be conquered. But who do we see coming to the rescue just when the people cry out needing salvation? It's not Saul. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul, the king, and Saul does in response what any man would do he cuts up his oxen and FedExes them to all his friends. That's what you would do, right? Makes sense. This is actually a, though very odd, I grant it, is actually a tremendous part of Scripture. You wouldn't think that. You just read over it, you're like, all right, they did some weird things back then. But this is actually really important to the story. If you read the end of the book of Judges, then you might remember that not that many years ago, we'll say 50 or so years ago from this point in time, the tribe of Benjamin committed a sin so grievous that I'm not even going to repeat it here in this worship service because there's young ears. But you can go back and read the last four or five chapters of Judges and you can get the gist of what they did. Suffice it to say, in a very truncated way, there was a long night of sin followed by murder. And this was all committed by the tribe of Benjamin. And when the other tribes of Israel found out about what they did, they cut the victim up into pieces and sent them out to the, all, all the 11 tribes, the 11 other tribes. And they said, something has to be done about Benjamin. They have to be punished for their sins. If you don't come out in battle against your brother Benjamin, the same will be done to you. So the other 11 tribes come out onto the battlefield, or I guess, yeah, the, all the 11 tribes come out on the battlefield, and they ransacked Benjamin. They absolutely devastated the entire tribe such that only 600 men were left in the entire tribe. They killed them all. Can you imagine what kind of devastation that is? Now, remember what tribe Saul comes from? It comes from the tribe of Benjamin. But you see, when Saul cuts up the oxen and sends it to the people of Israel, it is a reversal of what happened in the book of Judges. It's a reversal. This is using that same element and saying, we're back, baby. All right? we're back and I'm king and you need to come out to the battlefield and join us against the real evil. So instead of Israel fighting against themselves, as we see at the end of the book of Judges, God's people are now joined together in unity under the king over Israel and the king that God has provided. And they're going out to destroy a common enemy of God's people So this act of unity and victory is provided not merely by God being king, but by the Spirit of God that works in and through the king. That's what's happening here. Israel shows up on the battlefield, 330,000 strong, and pretends like we're going to surrender, divides their military up into thirds, walks into the camp of the Ammonites, and crushes Nahash and the Ammonites. But you understand, without the Spirit of God, Saul is still that little guy hiding amongst the baggage that we saw last week. Without the Spirit of God, there is no unity in Israel. There's no bringing them together. There's no victory on the battlefield. Without the Spirit of God there, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing but devastation. But the Spirit of God shows up, working in and through his king, and he unites the people of Israel under him to defeat the enemy of God's people. And then what is the result? Well, the second thing we see is that God's people rejoice in the victory that God provides. God's people rejoice in the victory that he provides. So they all gather together after the end of the battle with this big victory party. They're all celebrating. And some of the men, they're so elated with what's just taken place, the first big victory under their new king, that they start looking for an opportunity to divide again. They have to be Baptists. That's all I can say. It's where Baptists got their start. All right? look at verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, "Who is it that said Saul uh, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death." But Saul said, "Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel." Let's kill those guys that doubted Saul. But Saul steps in to these men and corrects their theology. Well, you know how Saul's story ends. It's going to end in tragedy, all right? Let's just, spoiler alert, all right? It's not going to end well. But knowing that, sometimes we can read that into the beginning of Saul's story, and yet that's not what we find in Saul's story at the beginning. Actually, in the beginning, Saul is not really wanting the kingship, which is what we see is commanded in Scripture that the king not want. (laughs) That he kind of refuses praise and doesn't really want adulation. He hides among the baggage. He's not really looking for a throne, so to speak. So Saul begins like many other kings in Israel. He's following after the Lord. And proof of that, he steps in and corrects the people. You think I defeated the enemy? I hid among the baggage. You think that was me that stepped out on the battlefield and conquered the enemy? The Lord worked salvation for the people of Israel today. It might be helpful to know one tidbit, one little fact that comes into play in this story that you otherwise might not know. This victory in battle was also a symbolic victory. It might be helpful to know that the word Nahash is a Hebrew word. It's left untranslated. The word Nahash is the Hebrew word that means serpent. It's actually the same word that's used for the same serpent that slithered into the garden in Genesis 3 to tempt man and woman to fall. It's more than ironic, don't you think? Here's the king, crowned king over Israel. And no sooner is the king of Israel crowned and charged with spreading the glory of God to the nations, than he leads them into battle against the serpent. So it's a real story. It took place in a real place and time with Saul defeating a real king named Nahash. But it also has a recall back to a famous tune that has been played more than once in the Bible. God's people going into battle against the serpent. The question is, will God prevail? Will his people prevail? Even the people are tempted at the end of the battle to say, who questioned Saul's might? Who was it? That question, Saul led us into battle. Saul defeated the serpent. Saul, 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 Saul. To which Saul says, no, it was God, the Lord over Israel. Can't you just hear, maybe, what's going on in Saul's head, perhaps? Maybe there's that same whisper that there was to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Are you sure that was God, the Spirit of God that rushed upon you? Or was that not your own passion and power that went out to the battlefield? Are you sure? Did God really say that He delivered Israel on the battlefield today? Did He really say that He would fight your battles for you? This spirit that's inside the people saying Saul, 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 Saul is that same prideful spirit that was present in the garden that led the people away from God to begin with that says we know best. We can teach ourselves, and I can take care of myself, thank you. I don't need your instruction. What is the result of this military victory? brought about by the Lord's Spirit. It says the people came together and renewed, with a renewed sense of purpose and, uh, uh, and an understanding for how this kingdom is going to work. Samuel takes them and he says they renew the kingdom. What does that mean? This is like the fourth time Saul's been named king over Israel. Isn't it? Just get on with it. Are you king or are you not? But what they're doing here is they're re- reiterating their commitment to Saul as king, but also they're renewing their commitment to the Lord as God over Israel. They're acknowledging the way that this thing is going to work, that God is the true King of Israel, and He's going to operate through His King, His human fleshly King on earth as a humble King over the nation. And what does it say at the very end of the verse, in verse 15? All the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So you see how things have changed from the beginning in 15 verses. We saw at the beginning they weep loudly at the threat of the serpent coming in to conquer them. They don't know what they're going to do. And what do we see by the end? But that their sorrow is changed to rejoicing. And how is it changed? Because the Lord's Spirit working through His King to grant victory over the enemy for His people. But you understand This is like the important part of the theme song being played here early on in the movie so that we might recognize triumph, real, genuine triumph when it comes. That song that God's people have been singing since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation. The song is called From Sorrow to Rejoicing. And it's the the theme song for God's people. Now, as we've said, Saul is going to flame out pretty soon. And like most of the rest of the kings, he's eventually going to fall to temptation. That same temptation from the great serpent. And he's going to consider his own will over the will of the Lord. The Lord's going to ultimately reject him. And king after king is going to rise and fall. And some will show signs of success followed by ultimate failure. Because the greatest sorrow that God's people face is not the sorrow brought about by the external forces, by flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We hear that from Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. That's the real enemy that God's people face. It's one thing to conquer an enemy on the battlefield but can they conquer the human heart no you see that's where nahash has really penetrated that's where the serpent has really worked his magic is in the heart of man and woman but yet we see on the pages of scripture with every new Adam that comes onto the scene like Saul is here. They fall to the same temptations as their ancestor did because when Adam fell, we all die. When Adam fell, he took all of his grandchildren down with him. But you see, there was a king who came. Whose name was Jesus. He's the true king of God's people. And see, he comes to us not having the same sinful nature as the original Adam. He comes to us fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, without inheriting corruption from Adam's failure. He comes to us born into a family who is of the line of David, who is on the course to be on the throne of David, and his ministry to us, in his ministry to us, he never fails Uh, Sorry, he never falls prey to the serpent's evil schemes. In every temptation he encounters, he never falls prey to the serpent's evil schemes. And where the kings that came before him showed signs of victory, but ultimate failure, what we see in Jesus is the exact opposite. We initially think it's going to be failure because he dies, but then ultimately it's success because he raises from the dead. He took his righteousness... the cross and died. Now, this is probably the most difficult event for anyone that followed in the span of those three days when he lay in the grave. This is the most difficult thing to wrap your head around as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Christ. How can the one who is king, who is to be Messiah, die? I think he's just flaming out like the rest of them flamed out. He wasn't really worth following. But then it takes a turn, doesn't it? How can this man possibly die? Well, he died taking the punishment of his people's sins. And three days later, he rises from the dead just like the hero in the story. You're taken to that climax of the movie where every, the, the music is pounding and you think the character, the main character, the hero of the story is dead and all of a sudden up from the flames, he, arise, tri, he arises triumphant. So Christ rises from the dead, and the entire orchestra joins in this song from sorrow to rejoicing because God's people have been taken from ultimate sorrow to ultimate rejoicing. The great serpent of old, the Hosh, has been defeated. He's been stripped of his title as accuser of the saints. In fact, he's been thrown out of the courtroom of heaven altogether. There's nothing for him to accuse since we have been forgiven. He has been thrown out of the courtroom because all of God's people who were held under God's wrath have all been freed from the burden of God's wrath by the blood of Jesus Christ. So everyone who is now free can celebrate. Nahash, the great serpent of old, has been thrown out of the heavenly courtroom. He's been robbed of his title as accuser of the brethren. And all he can do now is give you empty threats. That's all he's got. Friends, if if you're here this morning, and you currently feel under the thumb of sin and temptation, or maybe even Satan himself, You need to realize that you can have freedom from sin. You realize that? That you can have freedom from sin. That you have, that Christ promises freedom from death. You can have forgiveness. I don't mean the kind of forgiveness that lasts for a moment and then is jerked away as soon as you do something wrong again. I don't mean the kind of forgiveness that is only temporary or fickle. I mean the kind of forgiveness that says your sin is taken and cast as far as the east is from the west. I mean that kind of forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that says even if I pursue sin again, I can turn back to a Father who has already forgiven me and confess my sin to Him and feel renewed in my relationship with Him. I mean, that kind of forgiveness. I mean the kind of freedom from death where you don't have to worry anymore that all of a sudden when, when you, get, you stand before the judgment seat of God that it's all going to be different now. That what I thought was just imaginary and He's really going to turn to me and say, what, what are you doing here? I don't mean that. I mean real freedom where you really... Know that you're a blood-bought, born-again Christian. And here's what you can do. You can confess your sin to the Lord. Right now. You can confess it to Him. You can then trust that what Christ did on the cross was all that was required to satisfy the righteousness of God. You're not saying, now I'm going to do all these things to earn God's favor. No, no, no. God's favor was given to me through Christ's actions. He favors me. He loves me. And now, throughout my entire life, I can trust that Christ has forgiven me. That Christ really did die. That he really did take my sin. That I stand forgiven on his righteousness. But brothers and sisters, understand that this passage that we just read is a foreshadowing. Now, of course, it's a foreshadowing, as I just said, of the day when Jesus would come, endowed by the Holy Spirit, and would die, overturning the conviction and the sentence of death. But it's much more than that. His salvation is made available to you. That means that right now, you are his people. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are included in the family of God. And Christ and you are kindred. That you are brought into His family. That you are under His umbrella of protection. He has made you His people. And from now throughout all eternity, this same Christ will be continually fighting every enemy that stands before you. This same Jesus who crushed the head of the serpent on the cross says to his disciples before he leaves, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. I'm not worried about your protection. I got it. I'm in control of all this. Therefore, go. But his command comes with a promise. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see what he's saying to his people? The serpent that you've been afraid of has no power over you anymore. Death has no power over you. By the way, in case you're tempted to see that promise, I'm with you always, and and Jesus fighting your battles, in case you're tempted to see that promise as the prosperity gospel, hey, he's always going to get rid of my cancer. He's always going to give me that job. He's always going to give me more money. He's always going to, always going to, always going to. That's not what he means. Because the same people he's talking to all died spectacularly. That's not what he means. He means, I'm in control. I have the keys of death and Hades. My life has overturned all of that, so you don't have to be afraid anymore. You go, and I'll go with you wherever you go. That same Jesus then appears later to a man named Saul... Another Saul, New Testament Saul, on the road to Damascus as he's just killed Christians and he's going breathing threats to kill more Christians. And Jesus shows up on the road to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? This same Jesus is not a commander who sits in a center somewhere far removed from us. No, no. He associates your suffering, your death, your cares, your anxieties, your fears, with His own. Those are His. He takes on all the burdens you feel. Himself. Not only is the persecution of the saints in His hands, but the author of Hebrews then tells us, he goes a step further, and he says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You understand what He's he's saying? He's fighting for you, even right now, in heaven, interceding in His prayers for you. So maybe you got out of bed this morning, and you thought about going to church, and you had a bit of the grumblies you know what I'm talking about. Don't pretend like you don't. We all have them. All right. But you had a bit of the grumblies, mumbling about what you're going to do and how, how to go to church. It's not going to be like, would you like it? And then you see the songs and you're like, well, I don't like these songs or you know, whatever. Oh, I was too slow or too fast or the sermon's too long. Or, you know, all the kinds of things you grumble about. And you realize that in your bad attitude, Jesus is interceding in heaven on behalf of you because of that. You realize that? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying he is doing for you. Interceding on your behalf and as you struggle with temptation on all sides and accusation from that same serpent, his prayers on your behalf as you struggle with temptation and sin struggles, as you struggle with work struggles, money struggles, church struggles, relationship struggles, direction in life struggles, And not only does He care about all those things, but He's interceding for you that your faith will persevere through those things that would otherwise beat you down and drag you astray, just like it did Adam and Eve, just like it eventually will Saul, David, Solomon, and all the ones that came before. See, this passage is foreshadowing not just the cross It's foreshadowing not just Jesus' fight on our behalf right now as the real king over God's people comes to fight the temptations of the devil for us, but it's also foreshadowing when that same Savior, that triumphant king, who who has stored up for us an even better victory, returns it's foreshadowing all of Christ's ministry. Listen to what he says to the churches in Revelation. You ready for this? Because we're just going to go through a blitz of them, all right? Revelation 2, 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, 11, To the one who conquers... Will, will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2, 17 To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Revelation 2, 25 to 27, Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Revelation 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Revelation 3:12. the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Revelation 3:21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You hear that? All of the victories of God's people in the past, especially this one, are all foreshadowing that victory there that is purchased by the blood of Christ and Christ alone. How will you conquer? He says, don't you notice, to the one who conquers? Maybe the question came in your mind: How am I going to conquer? I don't feel very conquery right now. How am I going to conquer? Well, that same spirit that rushed onto Saul and led the children of Israel into battle to conquer the serpent is actually alive in you. That same spirit is alive in the saints. The reason that you're a Christian today is because he is working in and keeping you. You realize that? The reason you woke up and you were a Christian and not dragged away to death by the serpent is because that same spirit that rushed on Saul is in you and keeping you. So you continue little by little. Jesus fought for you on the cross. He's fighting for you today. And He's going to continue to fight for you from now until eternity. So, brothers and sisters, the message is very clear. Endure. Endure. Make war with bitterness. Don't just get up with the grumblies and be satisfied to just be grumbly. Actually, fight it, it's a sin. And it's the place where Satan has the strongest hold on your heart. Where bitterness is there, it's there by aid you can guarantee of Satan. It's there by your flesh too. But it's there by aid of Satan. Endure. Make war with bitterness. By the power of the same Spirit of God, crush the serpent who rears his ugly head in all of your trials. Maintain faithfulness to the Lord and receive the crown of eternal, eternal life, when finally and forever your sorrow will be turned to rejoicing. Look forward to that day. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of reflection at the end of the sermon. The song is a new one that we're getting ready already for Easter, all right? So we want to learn it. The song is called christ is risen he is risen indeed and it's a good one and i want to read you some of the lyrics to this how can it be the one who died has borne our sin through sacrifice to conquer every sting of death sing sing hallelujah for joy awakes as dawning light when Christ's disciples lift their eyes, Alive he stands, their friend and king, Christ, Christ he is risen. And the chorus goes like this, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, O oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. I think we can sing that, can't we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for all that it says and all that it means, but we're grateful, most of of which, for, for what it says about Christ, for what it tells us about Jesus and who He is. Father, we are so grateful and overwhelmed by the grace and mercy that You have given to us and shown to us on the cross, that we can rest in the assurance of Christ's righteousness for us, and know not only that Christ has paid it all for us, but that He has risen from the dead, he is ascended to your right hand, where he sits and rules and reigns on our behalf, where he intercedes for us. You have done all this for the glory of your own name and always for our good. May we see it as that where there is grumbling, where there is complaining, where there is gossip, where there is slander, where there is hatred, where there is bitterness, where there is all kinds of things that are seeds of the serpent that continue to tear down and drag us astray, would you lead us to confess those? Where we are unwilling to confess, perhaps you might show us a mirror by your word that might tell us who we really are, whether we are truly blood-bought, born-again, members of your family, or not. Pray that you would do that in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.